Hunter is that? Let's open with a word of prayer and then we'll get started this evening. Father, we thank you for uh, this night. Everything that it means to us as a church. And really we do. We give thanks for this time. We thank you for this very moment in which we can come together uh, just on a Sunday evening and to be enriched in your word. And so Lord, we ask that you would bless this time because you knew that all this would happen. You set it apart. You knew that this time would come. And so Lord, we do give thanks for it. And so now teach us through your word of what it means to be your people, to live out your word, to wrestle with your word, and to learn more about how we can be more like Christ. And so Lord, we ask all these things in his name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, we're going to be in Ezra. As I said it this morning uh, in worship, uh, that we would jump into Ezra, Nehemiah, and Garland in the back. I can see you looking around left and right, and then his head picked up. He was looking for Ezra. <laughs> and so uh, when I went home this afternoon and I was uh, actually rereading Ezra, he looked over at it and he said, that's Ezra's name. That's and then I got to actually explain to him that this is the book that he's named after. And so we're gonna, I'll give you a couple of snippets of why we named Ezra after Ezra uh, the priest. Uh, but tonight, what I really want us to, sort of the structure and aim of every Sunday night meeting, it's going to be, of course, communal. We're in community together, and I like the fact that we did set up the tables like this, because we can see one another, we can talk to one another, and so that is another essential key to these Sunday night meetings, is dialogue, talking to one another, with one another about um, the text that we're dealing with. So the more you talk, the less you get to hear me. So I see that as a huge benefit. <laughs> the more, seriously, the more dialogue that can happen, the better. So if there's something that jumps out to you in the text at some point, please speak up. I want to hear what's going on, what you're discovering, and we'll discover with one another. And ultimately, the, the greatest aim is to deepen ourselves in the scriptures. I mean, this is why Sunday night at 6 o'clock really exists. It's for you guys. It's a time where we can really just step back and soak in the word. Versus me preaching, we're going through this together. And it's a, a learning and teaching experience along the way. So that's sort of the, the structure and aim of every Sunday night when we meet. So it's going to feel like a classroom in some senses now that you're on spring break. It's going to feel like a classroom. So I'm going to actually, those pieces of paper are there for you. And I can say apologies first off because the books are on their way. I ordered them the first week of March. Actually, I tried to call Lifeway and she said, well, we can't order these. I was thinking, I've always had them ordered. It's no, never no problem. And then come to find out that Lifeway is closing, which is why they can't order it. And so they were on back order on Amazon. So they're going to be here. It's supposed to be Tuesday, along with your own personal journals to go with these. But if you have your own, use it. But it's going to be there for you. But we'll have those uh, full studies next week when we meet. 
So here's where we're going to start. A little exercise. Not that sense. Don't get up. <laughs> but a, a thinking exercise. Imagine you are a people of refugees. You're in some other land that's not yours. That's what we mean by refugee. And you've also heard through the elders to uh, a number of people, there's these, rumming, uh, these rumors that you're going to be returning to your homeland. But you will return because of a new king in, in power. I want you to write down three to five qualities of what you expect this king to be like. Three to five qualities, characteristics of what you expect this king to be like. All right? Wrestle with that. You're a refugee, not in your homeland. Rumor is you're about to go back, but it's only because of the power of this new king who is now on the throne. Describe what he's like. Pull some pins down here. Some pins. Oh, I forgot my pins. I got some. I got some. I got two in my pocket. All right, I want to start hearing from you. Throw one out. You know, all right, you can read all of them. Three or five, but throw some out. Sympathetic. Sympathetic. Good. What else? Compassionate. Compassionate. Trustworthy. Trustworthy. And optimistic. Optimistic. What else? Please. Honest. Honest. Yeah. Yeah. We would have hope this king is honest in some sense. Loving of the people. What'd you say, George? Protective. Protective. Yeah. Loving of the people. What else? Fair. 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 Good. Diplomatic. Diplomatic. A listener. A listener. Sympathetic. Sympathetic. Strong. Strong. Kind of normal. Okay. Some sort of servant king. Humble. Very humble. Hopefully God-fearing. Hopefully God-fearing in, in some way. Respectful. Very respectful. These are great. Once it comes to us understanding Ezra, the opening part of this story of Ezra is that you have these people in another land. They are refugees, what we call exile. They're not in their homeland. And they are they're being told that this new king in power, he's going to set them free from the places that they are. And they're going to be brought home because of this king. So the reason why I want you to start throwing those out is because he might not look like anything to what you just described. Maybe some of you, but he might not look like what we expect a king to actually look like. So let's, let's talk about this guy. His name is Cyrus. He's a Cyrus king. the Great. Cyrus the Great, or Cyrus of, of Persia. He is a major figure 
that comes to power, and you need to, let's go back in time a little. Uh, Assyria is in power in the 8th century. Then you have another major power that comes about in the 6th century, and that is uh, Babylon. And they pretty much reign for some time. And then you have Cyrus, who comes along and defeats Babylon. And at this time, if you defeated some other empire, you are now the ruling empire. So Cyrus has come on the scene. He's defeated Babylon. And because of that, he now has power over all territories that were, were of Babylon at that time. So we need to keep his name in front of our eyes because he's not going away through Ezra or Nehemiah. <clears throat> so he is not... This, this talk, uh, putting together some pieces as what you just wrote down about this king. Uh, this king is nothing ethnically and religiously like Israel. Completely different geography that he's from. Completely different race that he's of. Completely different gods that he serves. He's also um, talked about in a few different places. If you want to do some extra reading this week, you can look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah has helped set us the background of what's happening in Ezra, as well as Isaiah, specifically chapters 40 through 55, where he is first talked about, if I'm not mistaken, in uh, Isaiah 40. So you can read those chapters, read through, and see Cyrus pop up again and again. Now here's the thing. You call this king hopefully honest, trustworthy, right? You called him um, maybe protective in some sense. Why would you think this king who comes in, he defeats Babylon, why would you think he would let all of these refugees and these exiles go to go back into their homeland? Because he's doing what the Lord is heading to Okay, all right. He's doing what the Lord is having him do. What else? Even if you've never read Ezra before, just throw something out. Send a message. All right, send a message. He's trying to garner support of people. Okay, garner support of people. Anything else that pops into mind? Maybe he will take care of them. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't want to take care of them. I mean, you come into a land and you've got estimates are 20 to 100,000 of Israelites in this land. He comes into power. He might not want to take care of them. Go home. We got enough mouths to feed. But he doesn't, he doesn't force them to go. So, good. Uh, Ross is bringing something out. He doesn't force them to go home, but they are given this invitation to go home. And at least from what we know, that's exactly right. Because many of Israelites do stay in other lands. They stay in Babylonian kept lands. It's what's called the diaspora, the, the dispersing of all these people. Um, and so they are given that invitation. You're right, Ross, to go back in. But a huge majority do go. Very few do stay, but very, very many of them do go back in. All right. So now, here's my take on this. I think he's selfish. Even though I think what, um, what you're bringing out is right, is that he is doing what the Lord is, is sort of prompting him to do. 
But his reasons are in the wrong motivation. Because think, now that he's in power, he can tax these people. And in fact, he does. Because now that he has his hands on all of this, all these 20 to 100,000 plus people, he can tax every head that he wants. Here's another thing to keep in mind. Uh, income. Think of where Israel is geographically, where it sits. Right? You think of the sea to the left. Right? Then you have Israel that's tight right there. If you go down, you have Egypt. If you go up towards the northeast, you have Assyria. If you go towards directly east, you have Babylon. If you go on the other side of Babylon is where really Persia reigns. It's a majority of Asia. He's got income coming in at this point, too. Not just taxes, but he's got income in. So he's thinking financially. He's thinking financially. And here's the last thing. Egypt is another big power player in this time. So if Egypt, you pretty much have to come up towards into Israel in order to get to Assyria, Babylon, and then into Persia. If you send these people, 20 to 100,000 plus people, back into their homeland, they become a means of protection. You get word from them first that they're coming for you. Pretty smart. No idiot. He's actually thought through these things. And so even though we'll find out here in a second that the text does say that the Lord, and he even speaks that the Lord has given him this message to release his people, his motivations are merely political. Not theological, not worshipful, political at its core. Yet, God is working these things out for his own purposes and good, which is the far bigger story that we see. All right, so kids, I'm going to actually have you, if you want to draw, if you want to ride along with us, that's fine. Uh, we're going to read Ezra 1, verses 1 to 3. Somebody mind reading that? I'm going to let you guys take over. Ezra 1, verses 1 to 3. Go ahead. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jer Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house of Jerus at Jerusalem, which is in Judea, who is among all of you, his people? Who is among you, all of his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings from the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. All right, thank you. And I went through four rounds. No, that's fine. That's fine. That was all grouped in one more Hey, that actually ties in. No, that ties in to what we're going we're to expect anyway, so that's good. Now, what is he doing? Based off of what we see in the text, what is he doing? Like you said, seeing dollar signs. Yeah. But who's the main actor behind all this? Seems to be the case, right? 
This isn't uncommon. You find this several times throughout Scripture uh, where people make choices and even though in their own free will they make the choices, yet it's God who's behind the scenes making sure that all these things come about. Right? You see this, uh, for example, at the end of the story um, uh, of Genesis 50. You have the word spoken by Joseph to his brothers. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Even though his brothers came together in order to sell him off to get rid of him, because Jacob loved Joseph more than the other brothers. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So even though they had their own free will choice of what was going to happen, God is behind the scenes making sure that all the pieces fit together in order for his perfect will to be accomplished. Right? So this is not uncommon to the scriptures. You find it in Ruth as well. You find it in Esther uh, in, in that book as well. All right, so looking at verses 2 to 3 here, you see that this king is allowing this people to return to their homeland. And yeah, kids, you can draw this out. You can write this out. What are your major needs? If you remember where we started this, if you are this major people coming back into your homeland, what are your needs? Take a, about 30 seconds to write down what your needs are. Remember, you have nothing really at this point. So what are your needs? And knowing when you get back home, a lot of changes are going to have to happen quickly. Think about that as well. What needs to happen for the rebuilding? What needs, what needs are needing to be met to reestablish you as a people? All right, let's share. Leadership. Leadership, immediately, obviously. Yep. Government. All right, some sort of government that needs to happen. Protection. Place, yeah. Places place to live. Places to live. Food, shelter, clothing, mm -hmm. money. Yeah, the necessity A necessities. Place. A clean water source. A worship place. A clean water source. Clean water source. Mm -hmm. Safety. Yeah. Like with the travel back and then when they get there, yeah. keeping their family safe. Because you think the road uh, in between places mm -hmm. at that time, not great. You would definitely stay out of certain, you're by foot, obviously, but you would have to be very careful because a lot of people made their money by stealing from others because they were traveling from city to city and uh, town to town, village to village. What else? Ways of making a living. Okay, good. Jobs. Yeah, some sort of job system. Companions. Companions. Organization. Yeah. Some sort of organized society of some sort. 
But you gotta think they haven't been back in this this homeland in generations. A leader. Yeah, a leader or set of leaders. And they need a lot of faith. <laughs> You're right. To reestablish. To reestablish yourself as an entire people, you need a lot of faith, knowing that. No telling what you're going to uh, come back to. Anything else? What is it, the main thing, or you mentioned a couple of them, what are the main couple of things that the text says that they did immediately, or they were about to do immediately, according to Cyrus, his edict that he gives? Build a temple. There's the big one. And then going into uh, verse 4. Why is that important? Silver and gold. I mean, is this for them to put in their pockets? For them to start the lives, I guess, to be able to buy and trade for goods if they need. Pay the king's taxes. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe pay the king. Might be for some sort of financial means. Yeah. Have you ever done any studies of the temple in Jerusalem? No. It was beautiful. Uh, filled with gold, silver plated. So they would actually burn down the gold and the silver and then they would turn it into intricate carvings and artwork inside the temple. And then we're also shown that they're given beasts of the field, free will offerings. Uh, if you really want to be bored tonight, if you're having problems sleeping, go back to Leviticus. Leviticus, uh, I think that's the seventh chapter where the free will uh, offerings happen. Six or seven, one of those. The free will offering was, ex you, you can hear it, it's free will. So whenever you uh, went on a journey, let's say we decided all to go to California. Sounds nice right now. We made this journey, we're there for about a week, and we came home. If we were in ancient Jerusalem, what we would do is, upon entering the gates of Jerusalem, is that we would come back and we would give a free will offering. Because we are giving thanks for the journey that God has provided and also provided provision over in this entire time. And so this is a thank offering or a thanks offering of some sort where they are giving a humble and very profound thanksgiving before God himself. And so it's what's so powerful about that is this, who's giving them all these things? Cyrus, a non-Jew, what we would call in Scripture's language a Gentile. So he was not supposed to be a part of the promises of, of Abraham. He's a non-Jew. But he's also still participating in God's will and mission and purpose to bring these people back into their homeland. He's not only doing that, but he is actually inviting them to go back and rebuild your temple and reestablish yourself as a people. Now, his motivations, we've already said, probably weren't so great. Filled with taxes and military defense, most likely. 
but still at the same time, he's giving them the necessities of what they need in order to reestablish themselves as a government, as a people, and as a worshiping community. Does that make sense? Any feedback you have on that? You don't have to, but you're welcome to. You don't oppress them in that sense. Man, you might tax the mess out of them, but you don't oppress them by holding your foot over their throat in a physical way. But you say, go back, return to your homeland, rebuild. So yeah, he's appeasing. You bet. Anything else? Other people? Just me, but I feel like he wasn't, he wasn't giving all the, the <coughs> just because to do better for him, I feel as wrong. I feel like I feel like God would have chosen if God knew He was going to do that in a wrong sense of. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, say it again. I'm trying to get it in the words right, but I feel like Cyrus is given the beast of the land and silver and gold as if to better himself. I get to him because God told him to. I don't feel like God would have chosen Cyrus if He knew. The Cyrus had done all those things just so he could do wrong with them. Yeah. You know and, what I'm saying? Yeah. And like God told him because he felt like he was going to be a, a stand-up, you know, honest, true guy instead of trying to go behind his back and, you know, get money from them and get their support just to build an army off and attack them. But I don't think, just my opinion, I don't know. Yeah. You and, know? No, that's right. I think you're wrestling with the right questions because on the face of it, if you just read Ezra, like the first four verses, you do get that sense. But then you read other parts like um, Isaiah 45 verses 1 through 4 where Isaiah specifically tells us that he had no theological reason why he did this but only for political reasons. Mm -hmm. And then you read Jeremiah as well, the other prophet, and you just see this very nasty figure that he's really trying to serve his own ends. Ultimately, he's trying to serve his own ends. But what you're doing is, is spot on. You're wrestling with why in the world would God choose such a corrupt leader in order to bring about his his way? Yeah. It shows that God can be such a corrupt mm -hmm. person, non-Christian. Because we expect. And, and don't get me wrong, George, because what you find... Um, Plenty of times in Scripture is that God does want that king who is after his own heart, such as David. And in fact, when a king was newly established, you can read uh, Deuteronomy 14 for this. Uh, when a king was established, he was expected to not only recite the Scriptures, at that time would have been the first five books of Scripture, but he was expected to also rewrite the first five books of scriptures because he, God wanted that king to really meditate on the scriptures and to be a true loyal king who
who is a, 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 a servant more than anything. But then you still have those very corrupt kings and figures. Um, if you read the book of Judges, for example, there's tons of judges and rulers that rise up to power, and some of them are evil to the core. And yet God establishes them in order to remind the people that ultimately the greatest king that the people have is God himself. He is the true king. And so you do see, but ultimately what Jenny's saying is, it's showing that God is provident over all things, regardless of the character. But at the same time, he does want the true king to have the greatest character that there is, the one that seeks after God's own heart. They knew it was going to be tough to get that temple built, too. Yeah. Yeah, and, and scholars bring out to this is that it's not that they rebuilt a completely new temple. This is Solomon's temple. This is the temple that was expected for David to build, but God tells David, no, 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 I don't want you to build it. I want your, king, your son to build it. And so this actually ends up being the exact replica of what Solomon built as to the T as much as possible. And so they're not going on and going back and rebuilding something brand new. They're making sure that it still fits the exact measurements, the structure, the frame, every bit of it to the T. Well, why was it so necessary that everything be just exact? Yeah. Big Good symbolism. question. What's that? I think symbolism or foreshadowing, whatever you call it. To rebuild the temple is, and we'll get to this here in a second, is to remember the people. When they see the temple being rebuilt, they realize we're stealing the promises. Okay. Right? We're stealing the promises. Because as soon as that temple was thrown over by Assyria and Babylon, they think our God's no longer with us. So when they're rebuilding, they're thinking... We're still a part of the, his plan. We're a part of this divine plan that is being worked out right in the middle of us. We don't know how, but he is working things out. He's rebuilding their faith. Yeah, and rebuilding their faith because, again, we'll get to this. I don't want to expect it too much. But how did the people worship in this day? Where did they go? To the temple. To the temple. That was the place. It's not like, hey, we've got our options here in America. I can go to that church, that church, that church, that church. No, no, no. In Jerusalem, you had the temple. That's where you went with you and your family in order to worship Yahweh, worship the Lord. And so if you don't have the temple, you cannot meet with your God. Your God cannot meet with you. And so in a very symbolic sense, you bet. This is a people being reestablished. But it's also worship and a communion with that God being reestablished. 
All right, so let's look at that. Let's start um, landing the plane here in the next few minutes. <clears throat> what is the role of the temple in Israel? And that's where we're starting to get at. So when you, in ancient times, especially Israel, when you are building a temple, it is a way of claiming a land. This is your land because you have established a temple. This is the land that this God owns. And so when you have, for example, uh, Abraham, who's not sure if uh, he is really still in the promises. If you read Genesis 15 and 17, what happens is that God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to promise you three things, Abraham. I'm going to, and they're all P's, it makes it easy. Property, land, I'm going to promise you um, prosperity, that through you become the nations of the world. You, through you, many seed will come. And then lastly, the word we don't use anymore really, but progeny, what? Children. Children. All right. So you have property, prosperity, progeny. Those are the three main promises given to Abraham. The main one, or not the main one, the first one that I mentioned, property, was key. Because this God is selecting them. They're ta he's taking them from Egypt and putting them back to the land that he's promised them. And upon entering that land, eventually, slowly, they will build a place of worship, a temple. So when a temple is built, it's like this is the property, the land that this God is a part of. So it's a claiming of a land. Secondly, it's a symbolizing when you rebuild or when you have this temple, it symbolizes a particular God is in power. That's what you're going to see the wrestling with Ezra. The book of Ezra is that even though Cyrus is the power, he's not the ultimate power. And so you're going to see who really is in control of these things. Who truly is the greatest king. And even though you might not have it laid out right in front of us in some chapters, God's behind the scenes making sure that this is coming to fruition. It's going to happen and come about. Thirdly, as I said a second ago, a temple, uh, it, it allowed the people to actually worship God. So a communion happened. God meets with the people. People meet with God. That is really the primary function of the temple. And then lastly, it demonstrates that this people um, are trying to be faithful to the promises of God. So when they're going back in and they're rebuilding, you bet. They're trying their best. So you're talking about the exact measurements that had to be there. If you want to read this, you want to be bored tonight, you can't sleep. Exodus 25 to 40, where you have all the measurements laid out. And they're... There, there's reasons, there's theological reasons behind each and every one of them. And the, the ultimately, if you bullet down to something, it's this. So that when the people walked into this temple, they were overcome with the presence of God. So the gold and silver, you bet. The shining of that, there's something holy happening right now. You see all the art carved into the walls and um, if you look at a lot of archaeology that's breaking down the temple the way it's constructed, you see a lot of pictures of garden and fruit and rivers. 
that were originally constructed of the artwork in the temple. What does that remind you of? The Garden of Eden. Where the original meeting between God and his people happened. So to walk in the temple is to actually walk back into the garden. What a beautiful picture. Is to have this perfect communion with this God who originally designed you for worship. So that temple provoked those emotions, the heart and the eyes, the ears, the smells. All of that was meant to actually bring out a worship of this God. And then, uh, yeah, no, that was the final, final point. They're trying to be faithful and obedient to that. So here's the takeaways for tonight. There's three takeaways, and you're going to hear me be redundant about some of these takeaways. It's because it's just a common thread that we're going to see throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. A couple of them are. Uh, I'll try to give you new takeaways for each part that we read, we only got to four verses tonight. Uh, but as we keep, yeah, it's crazy, huh? When we keep drudging through this, I'll try to give you a few different takeaways. But here's the first one. And we've sort of already talked about this. All of the might of the political world is under the rule of God. We already said this. Cyrus might be uh, in some sort of rule and reign over the kingdoms, uh, well, serving as the king of Persia, but over the, now the kingdoms of all of Babylon. Yet it is this God who is ultimately reigning and ruling, and he is the one who is faithful to preserve a people for his purposes. Enough peas in that? He is faithful to preserve a people for his purposes. Purposes. <clears throat> so what you find, um, and I'm going to jump around in chapters of, of, of Ezra here. Ezra, uh, Ezra, Israel must be remain, uh, retain integrity with the Gentile king. This is Cyrus, by being diplomatic and politically wise. So you find this in chapter five, verses eleven through sixteen. Uh, they don't want to be rebellious, right? You don't want to push up against this king at all. So you're going to be very politically smart in what you do because you're having your, your complete government rebuilt at this point. They pray for the well-being uh, of the Persian king. You find this in uh, Ezra 6.10. They are praying for this king even though he is doing kind of manipulative things behind their back. Which shouldn't really surprise us because Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy and tells Timothy to tell the churches in the area to do the same. To pray for the king. Peter tells his churches to honor the king. Even though in this day and time, in the first 60 years of the church, pretty uh, disgusting kings and what they're doing to the Christians. Second takeaway, Israel is a worshiping community because they now can rebuild, but they're relying on the instructions of God. Say that again, Israel is what? Is rebuilding their temple, and they're relying on the instructions of God. The key part here is that here are a people reestablishing themselves, and how are they doing that? They're going back to the scriptures. 
to rebuild the temple according to the plans that were originally given to Moses. So it shows something about their faithfulness in in these circumstances. They gladly accept the funding from the Persian king to rebuild their political and theological world. And then lastly, last takeaway, Israel desires to bring honor to their God before the very face of their pagan armies and people around them. Israel desires to bring honor to their God before the very faces of the pagan armies and the pagan people around them. I hope you hear me hinting at what this says about us as the church. I hope you're hearing me hint. I'm not trying to give away too much yet uh, since this is just the first night. But I hope that hints at us what we are supposed to be as the church. In other words, uh, if I can use John's language, John 17, where he says, um, you're to be uh, in the world. Your daily life is going to take place in the world. You're not going anywhere else. But you're not to be of the world. And so they're practicing holiness in front of these very unholy people around them. Yes, pop quiz uh, next Sunday night. You'll be filling the blanks. I'm glad I don't have to take notes for you to take a picture. No, don't give me my ideas. It's not what the toy family is. Okay. You get a zebra, buddy. Here you go. I hope you guys enjoyed it. This is the first night of many nights that we have together. And if you go home uh, this evening and let's say you're just continuing to work through this text, write some of these things down. I'll have journals, personal journals for you next week. Uh, And share with us when we come back. Please do. I'd love to hear some of the things that you're discovering Uh, But we'll be in Ezra 1 next week as well. We're not going much further. This is uh, a long obedience in the right direction. We're going to try to stay as tight to the text as possible, but also move slowly so we can catch all the details. Yeah, and we we can just see every small detail of what's being brought out. And so the reason why I have you write and take notes and think creatively like how does this fit in is because it does it slows us down so that we can really dig into the text itself alright anybody's got anything else we'll close in prayer Father again we thank you this is our free will offering tonight that you have led us on this journey and here we are tonight this evening We give thanks to you because you have set aside this night for us to grow more deeply in your scriptures. And so I hope we do that. I hope we do that. I hope we just dig so deep that we become so mesmerized by your scriptures and more importantly mesmerized by you. And so may you meet with us every Sunday night so that we can really enjoy the depths of them. So keep feeding us. 
because we're hungry. And so this evening and this week, may we continue to live out your word as we scatter now from this place in order to demonstrate, as we said this morning, that faith, hope, and love, wherever you call us to be, we offer these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.